Welcome to the Finding Sustainability Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today's guest is Helen Roswadowski. Helen is an associate professor of history at the University of Connecticut, where she is also the founder of the Maritime Studies Program. Helen is the author of numerous books about the history of the ocean, including her most recent book titled Vast Expanses, A History of the Oceans. The book demonstrates that the human relationship with the ocean began in evolutionary time and has tightened dramatically since then. It aims to provide a model for writing ocean history and argues that the ocean histories must examine and historicize the technologies and knowledge systems that enabled and accompanied human interactions with the sea. It was a real pleasure to talk with Helen as she was on a trip around Europe and she was kind enough to come to my institute in Bremen and present her work to us and to do this podcast. Michael Cox also joins during the podcast on Skype as you might notice a change in audio quality, but this should all hopefully be understandable. So please enjoy this very insightful and enjoyable conversation with Helen Roswadowski. One thing I could do is start uh, pretty far back in time and point out that I grew up in, uh, in Pennsylvania on Lake Erie, and I saw the ocean only one time when I was 11 uh, growing up and did not see it again until I went off to Williams College in Western Massachusetts, which is, as you imagine, pretty landlocked, and then did a semester program called Sea Education Association Semester. And uh, that program put me on a tall ship, a traditionally rigged vessel for six weeks doing oceanography. Um, and I had been an English and biology double major, which, you know, I, that's what I graduated as. But on that trip, I got interested in the history of oceanography because my oceanography professor told us that the kind of technologies we were using and the kind of vessel and the kind of cruise track we were uh, sailing to do the science we were doing was more like science was done in the past. And, and that kind of initiated a, a kind of interest in the history of science, which is what I then studied for my graduate work. Um, I, and I did that at the University of Pennsylvania. And now you're at the University of Connecticut? Yes. So how did you end up there? Well, I was uh, uh, kind of doing a bunch of different things after I finished my PhD. And uh, the University of Connecticut was getting ready to start a maritime studies program, an undergraduate interdisciplinary major. And somebody forwarded me the job advertisement, and it looked like maybe it had been written for me, actually. It was, uh, they, they liked the idea of having a historian of science because there are lots of scientists on the campus where I'm located. And uh, they wanted someone whose experience uh, lent itself to, to running an interdisciplinary program. And I had some administrative experience and then also my academic work makes you know some use of literature, some use of anthropology, uh, so and some use of science. So uh, I, I, I think I looked like a good candidate for them. Yeah, so one, one of your major focuses is actually marine history and, or the history of the oceans, you could say. Um, why is it so important in your view that we take a historical perspective on the oceans? So I started out really doing the history of marine sciences or ocean sciences, and I and I and I consider what I'm doing right now today more broadly history of the ocean. So I'll kind of answer that in two parts. Um, I think it's important to do the history of ocean sciences and oceanography for the same reasons it's important to do the history of anything so that you don't end up with a false perception of uh, the past. So for example, when I began work on my, my dissertation, everyone understood that the, the famous British 
voyage of the HMS Challenger was the starting point for oceanography. And my work showed that the uh, Challenger expedition, far from kind of erupting de novo out of the sky or the ground or the ocean, was actually something that had quite a lot of precedence in terms of the activities of marine naturalist dredgers, zoologists who became interested in sea creatures, uh, the work of hydrographers who were studying, uh, trying to figure out for the first time ever how deep the ocean was. Because before that, hydrographers would carry 200 fathom sounding lines because they were really interested in ruling out shallowness and not necessarily in measuring depth, if you can see the difference. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, uh, what became my second book was this argument for the cultural discovery of the ocean's depths in the mid-19th century, um, bringing these different communities of scientists together, but also together with people who began to uh, have ambitions to lay a transatlantic submarine telegraph cable, for example. Uh, and then all kinds of cultural uh, interest in the ocean in terms of the rise of beach holidays and yachting and uh, maritime novels and, and lots of things that were evidence that people in the mid-19th century were, were becoming engaged with the ocean and not just the surface of the ocean for trade or warfare, but, but the, the entire ocean. Uh, so starting to see the ocean as a, a three-dimensional place that people had a relationship with. Yeah. How did that transition affect how we interact and, and use the ocean, this transition from a terrestrial, more terrestrial perspective of a plane which is uh, versus a three-dimensional perspective? So I think I, I probably have a different answer to that now that I've written this new book, uh, Vast Expanses, A History of the Oceans, than I might have had if I had answered that question at the moment I finished my dissertation, which became my book, Fathoming the Ocean. Um, but uh, so I'll answer it more from my perspective now. I now understand that what was happening in the mid-19th century was part of a, a, a broader process by which, uh, although the ocean was not becoming any less important as a workplace, uh, was uh, uh, the situation was such that in the mid, mid to late 19th century that uh, for many people, connections with the ocean were becoming more um, uh, characterized by recreation and thinking about the ocean as a place to retreat to. Islands were understood in a kind of nostalgic sense as places that were lost in time. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and part of that transformation was that fewer people began to be, to have the ocean as their workplace. So for example, although there was lots more shipping in terms of how many products were transferred across oceans, fewer people were involved in the shipping industry. And most importantly, especially in the 20th century, uh, shipping began to be consolidated in, in uh, big ports and less connected to the kind of coastal shipping that happened all the time. So in, this, in the 16th and 17th centuries, I think people understood the oceans as being um, connected to, to uh, what was going on and caught up in time. Uh, and what happened in the late 19th century was uh, a new association of the oceans with timelessness and separateness from, from everyday life. Uh, so, so if you look in the 19th century, that sense of timelessness and apartness is very, very clear in the work of um, uh, people like Lord George Byron and uh, uh, Thoreau and uh, many, many um, 
poets and novelists, you have the sense of the ocean as being a place that is immune from human activity, uh, is a place that, that is, uh, you know, full of kind of limitless resources and, uh, in particular, full of resources that are there, uh, for the taking as long as you have the power and the knowledge to be able to take them. I mean, this was very much, uh, a, a world um, created by imperialism. So, so there's a uh, uh, a sense that um, if if you could use the oceans, uh, then and, and that was why nations like Britain enforced freedom of the seas because they didn't have to keep other people away from the seas. They knew mm-hmm. they had the power and the knowledge to be able to use the ocean in any way they wanted to, transportation, warfare or showing the flag, uh, fisheries, that sort of thing. So, so that, that tradition of freedom of seas that emerged kind of between the 17th and the 19th century was very closely tied to a regime whereby these, these imperial powers were uh, deliberately exercising the ability to uh, gain knowledge about the oceans and create various kinds of representations of that knowledge that could be handed off to mariners so that they could use the ocean in in ways to kind of um, uh, support and enforce the power of these these uh, western imperial nations you gave this nice example you were presenting some of your work from one of your, your recent book chapters in the book that you mentioned about this idea of, of the ocean as the frontier uh, the metaphor of the ocean as the frontier and how this uh, similar to it was perceived in the american west um, on land um, how is that? I think you gave some examples probably of how that metaphor has shaped the use of the oceans, but how powerful is that metaphor of ocean as the frontier? And is it still like this today? Right. So I think, first of all, metaphors are an important way that people, at least uh, Westerners, have understood and and kind of defined the ocean over time in the 19th century there are examples of people talking about the ocean as a highway uh, or perhaps as a wilderness. So, so metaphors are, are really important for, for organizing uh, the way we think, especially about places like oceans, which are so hard to know directly uh, because they're so big and they're so difficult. They're opaque uh, for most of us, uh, that sort of thing. But um, the ocean frontier metaphor was one that um, kind of got a little bit of traction at the beginning of the 20th century, especially if you think about or if you look into people's concerns about declining whale populations in the early uh, decades of the 20th century. Whales were very often referred to as being like the bison of the Western Plains. So there were some some antecedents to uh, the the metaphor of the western U.S. West, the frontier, as applied to the ocean. But the time that it really got um, a lot of attention was after World War II. In the 1950s and 60s, you suddenly have uh, many, many people, especially scientists, but also popular writers about the ocean, entrepreneurs, industrialists, uh, the media, starting to refer to the ocean as a frontier. And by this, they meant a number of things. Uh, one was the anticipated shift uh, from uh, uh, what, what people described as a hunting mode to a farming mode. They pointed out, you know, we still do mostly hunt rather than farm in the ocean, but um, most of our fisheries are wild caught. But um, they thought that was terribly old fashioned and that we ought to be moving along and, and you know, organizing the ocean 
in, in ways that were like uh, how the earth was organized to make better use of the ocean's resources. They also very much anticipated uh, the inauguration of industries in the ocean. So there, I showed a picture in the, um, in the talk that's also uh, reproduced in my book of an entire oil industry that would operate underseas. So the, the, the drilling would be undersea, the refining would be undersea, and the transportation would be by submarine. Um, so, so the idea was that these undersea industries would be um, supported by people who lived and worked undersea. So there was an anticipation, and this again kind of picks up the frontier motif, that the ocean would be a uh, new living space, that eventually we would simply live underwater. Yeah, you showed some some pretty interesting kind of space or looking at least oriented images in in your presentation. What was the role of of those types of kind of characters and, and images in shaping the in the public discourse? Well, one of the things that was happening, of course, was the the simultaneous rise of interest in space exploration. Uh, the the I have found earlier examples of the ocean being described as frontier than space, but regardless of quibbling about whether one was slightly before the other, they clearly those cultural constructions happened at the same time. And if you go back, one of the things I did when I was doing research was I, I looked through Life magazine between 1949, which was the first year that scuba technology was commercially available in North America. And uh, I kind of went through the 60s, so right to the end of the 60s. And uh, I, I was asking a number of questions, but one of the questions I was asking was, what was the attention to space versus the underwater, uh, the, the ocean frontier? Mm -hmm. And uh, in Life magazine in particular, there was quite a lot of interest in scuba and the ocean and underwater. Uh, and so, so you see those imaginaries kind of developing uh, in relation to one another. Now, from today's perspective, most people don't really remember all that kind of ocean imagery that I showed you, uh, you know, the kind of undersea hotels and, and things like that, that, that were part of popular culture in the 1960s. And we do remember the space pictures, images, because space is sort of still important. But that's one of the, uh, the things that, that historians can offer is to kind of help us go back in time and, and see the world the way people at the time would have seen it and, and understand how powerful uh, the, the expectations surrounding the ocean were at that time. Yeah, I was wondering if you kind of, as a historian, you see this kind of amnesia where we forget that we kind of went through this process already. And you, I imagine you kind of have, see these reoccurring cycles of different themes and different discourses about the ocean. Um, do you think we're largely repeating some of those today that we've already went through in the 50s and the 60s? Or what are some of the main kind of discourses about the ocean at the moment and how it's being used? Well, one thing I would say is that uh, today you hear lots of discussion about uh, undersea mining and various kinds of minerals and, and other kinds of non-living resources that are going to be um, uh, accessible by modern technology at any moment. And, and I like to sort of remind people that that was exactly the, the story that was being told in, in the mid-1960s, uh, and that didn't come to pass. So, there, you know, there are a couple of lessons. One is um, uh, maybe the ocean is more difficult than we thought, and as enthusiastic and positive or 
as ambitious as we are about the technology uh, to to extract things from the ocean, um, it, you know, it may give us more run for our money than we think. So so maybe we should temper our, our optimism a little. But um, I think one of the other things it does is remind us that so much of what we see when we look in the ocean is more a reflection of what we bring to it in terms of our ambitions, our desires. In other words, the ocean is more mirror than uh, maybe we we think. And that's one of the things that the humanities can kind of remind us of is, you know, if we see ourselves coming up with these very specific um, goals for the ocean, we should maybe stop and, you know, kind of investigate where those goals came from, how they're connected to uh, things that were articulated in the past about how we might have wanted to use the ocean. Mm-hmm. So so that's, that's something that I think... Um, uh, I'm, I'm usually pretty skeptical when I see something in, in the news about, you know, oh, well, we're testing out these uh, undersea giant machines that are going to mine manganese nodules. And I think, well, maybe. <laughs> but there are, I mean, the problem is we haven't really solved uh, all of the uh, geopolitical and, you know, kind of economic uh, and, and equity, uh, global equity issues that are embedded in, you know, what seems like a simple thing, like let's go out and, and pick things up from the bottom of the seafloor that are valuable. Yeah, great. This has been a really interesting and multiple friends. One initial question is, Helen, how do you think it would change some of these dynamics if, say, the philosophy of science and the history of science were required aspects of PhD programs in engineering, ecology, and public policy. Would you see that as something beneficial? I do think that would help. And I think that um, anytime you ask scientists and engineers to step back and think about how they're creating knowledge about the natural world, uh, they will begin to see uh, influences that they wouldn't have otherwise addressed in terms of uh, what are the, the kind of social and environmental problems we're trying to solve, uh, sometimes very blatantly where the money comes from. That's something that historians of science are good at tracing. Uh, and, and things like that definitely influence the kind of questions that are asked and sometimes influence the kind of knowledge that's produced. And, you know, I think there are lots of examples within the history of science that uh, that, that show those kind of influences. And so, you know, while we, we earnestly want to think that science and engineering produces um, objective knowledge, uh, it is very much embedded. There are human activities. Uh, and, and so I think it's always a good idea uh, to teach scientists and engineers to understand what they're doing as a human endeavor and not something that is somehow uh, special and, and, you know, apart from other kinds of human endeavors. Yeah, I mean, it just that resonates really strong with me. I, I was just also thinking about your point about the, the use of metaphors. Mm-hmm. I feel like when a lot of us are kind of internalizing our, our professional norms and becoming part of a group, we also internalize these different metaphors, whether it's the balance of nature and ecology or whether it's society as a set of supply and demand curves. Uh, and introductory economics and I don't think it's just I almost it feels like this funny quirk of the human brain that we kind of act as if these things came down from on higher out of nowhere yeah 
Yeah, and, and you've that, got to take that step back. Yeah, the ocean frontier story is a funny one because in some ways it's attenuated a little bit um, with, uh, as I argue in my book, especially the failure of the Northwest Atlantic cod stocks to recover that, that stock that had been fished for 500 years. The failure of that stock to recover when it when it was uh, uh, let alone and not fished for, for a decade or more was shocking to people. Everyone expected that the stocks would recover. And that was kind of the first glimmering uh, of an idea that maybe people had changed an ecosystem, not just fished a stock of fish. And, and so, you know, on the one hand, you know, you start to, you're tempted to think, well, that ocean frontier metaphor has been kind of pushed aside. But in fact, last week at this IC symposium that I attended, I heard a couple of papers, including by uh, scientists advocating uh, developing the kind of technology that would be needed to, to fish for mesopelagic fish, fish that are kind of in the middle, that float around in the middle. They're widely dispersed, but they make a, a big um, amount of biomass if you could catch them. Um, but never asking the question, should we catch them? Or is that simply doing what we've been doing, you know, for 100 or 150 years of commercial fishing, which is fishing out one stock and moving on to the next? So in some ways, I feel like the frontier metaphor was still guiding some of the talks I heard at that conference, even though I, you know, I really don't think that the, the, the people giving those talks would have thought of it in, in that way. Yeah, the, I mean, this idea of the ocean of the mirror, I'm still kind of getting, getting over that. I mean, it's, pretty, it's a pretty powerful statement. I mean, when I'm teaching my courses on environmental governance, I'm always trying to impress upon my students the fact that the idea that the lessons we're learning are helpful socially, but also in our own lives. And for me, it's always seemed, you know, it's this like endless task to like be aware of what you bring to a situation in like multiple contexts in your life. It's like, how much am I actually imposing or projecting out to this versus letting a system or a person talk to me? Mm -hmm. So I have a favorite example from the mid 19th century that I think kind of helps unpack the mirror analogy. When uh, scientists started studying the Atlantic Ocean floor with the idea of putting submarine telegraph cables down there, they were uh, using sounding technology, which was very much in development, and the results of these devices acting out of sight under the waves was very much up for interpretation. So that was one thing that was happening. And uh, even when they ended up kind of settling on one particular technology, uh, which presumably is at least a little more consistent, you know, if you use it a bunch of times, um, they ended up with this picture of the ocean floor that was articulated by Matthew Fontaine Morey, one of the uh, scientists, and uh, he was a U.S. naval officer, most involved in, in trying to find ways to create representations of winds and currents, of um, other kinds of uh, data about the ocean that, that would make it usable to, to um, mariners. So for example, he created this whale chart that showed where whales were caught, and it was something that helped uh, whalemen in the Pacific know kind of where to go and what season to look for whales. So he was really good at this kind of 
organizing data visually in a way that uh, Alexander von Humboldt had done. Indeed, he was uh, an admirer of Humboldt and called the book that he wrote uh, The Physical Geography of the Sea in homage to Humboldt's physical geography that was the field that he was kind of articulating. But Maury, when he was trying the first one to really try to describe the deep sea floor, he described it as a place where there were no currents, the bottom was very soft, full of these soft sediments that were things that were shells of dead animals, so there was simply nothing to endanger a telegraph cable. And indeed, at exactly the point where they hoped to put the telegraph cable, he and his hydrographers found uh, a kind of moderately deep uh, stretch of ocean that was the same depth all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. Now today, we'd be a little skeptical because we know there's the mid-ocean ridge, which they missed. But in this, you know, you can interpret this as they had some data, maybe by today's standards, they didn't have enough data. But the way I like to think about it, they actually laid the cable successfully. I mean, as far as they were concerned, they found a good place to put the cable and they put it there and it worked. You know, and only later did they discover there is life at the bottom of the sea. They missed the mid-ocean ridge, you know, but at some level, there's a question of, I mean, that's sort of where the mirror comes in, right? I mean, they they were content with the version of the ocean that they were uh, uh, seeing, so to speak, or finding, because they were able to do what they wanted to do. And, you know, at other times, when people asked different questions, they went back, uh, for example, some of the um, early voyages before the HMS Challenger began to see temperature differences that made them suspect there were ridges um, in in the North Atlantic, and so then they went and looked, and they found ridges. So, so that's what that sort of goes back to what um, we were talking about a minute ago about one reason why scientists should probably uh, study the history of science because you know examples like that might help you suspect that that there must there you know even though you think you've thought of everything there might be limitations to the questions you're asking because of what you you know what your ambitions are what you hope to do or what you hope to learn thank you in in several of these examples that we've talked about whether it's england versus other countries or uh, cod fishers and governments or different communities of science there's there's a intergroup dynamic behind a lot of these stories whether or not groups are working together whether they're conflicting or not has your work led you to have come to any conclusions about how to kind of bridge some of those divides say whether it's intellectually within academia or between certain scientists and historians and other groups well i think historians are really um loath to try to take what we learned and, you know, exactly apply it to the present or predict the future. But I will say that history gives all kinds of lessons about uh, the power of institutions and how institutions shape things that happen. Um, You know, in some cases, maybe intergroup dynamics, certainly good at paying attention to geopolitics, um, quite good at uh, helping us understand certain kinds of uh, social categories and how uh, how they have influenced uh, history. So I'll give you an example of the latter, which has some connection also to institutions. Uh, in the second half of the 19th century, as fisheries were industrializing, there were 
uh, fishers who were going to governments in Canada and the United States in places in Europe and complaining that the fish stocks were declining and asking the governments to do something about it. And uh, the governments, especially in England and in places that then became influenced by the work of uh, Thomas Henry Huxley, uh, took the the position that uh, the fishermen didn't really know what they were doing and that scientific study suggested that um, most of the time fisheries were fairly inexhaustible and if they were exhaustible you would just find a different stock to fish and so there was a kind of um, broad scale discounting of the knowledge of fishermen and that is not unrelated to the fact that people like Huxley were very much um, supporters of free market ideology and they they preferred big capital intensive fishing companies to individual fishers. And so kind of what came out of this, this what began as a kind of a conflict between these kind of local fishermen and uh, them seeking redress from the government was uh, a kind of enforcement of a, 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 a regulatory regime and a set of uh, kind of uh, the things that the government did that encouraged uh, large capital-intensive uh, um, fisheries where fishermen became employees instead of uh, having their own boats and, and things like that. So there you have uh, class, you have ideology, you have different kinds of institutions uh, shaping what happened. And, and so there was science in the middle of all that, but all the other stuff really probably completely overwhelmed the science. Yeah, I want to, when I'm, when I'm thinking about your, you've written three different books now, um, and the latest one, Vast Expanses. I'm, I'm interested in the process of, of the developing of the idea to, to get to the stage where you're going to commit to writing such a, such a project, such a large uh, academic project. You know, how does that, how does that form in your mind when you think about what what kinds of questions are big enough to to write into a book and to worth exploring deeper and versus maybe i'll just write a, an article or a series of smaller pieces about it how did you get to like the your ideas coming into into book into a book well uh i'll say my first book was in a way the easiest because it was kind of assigned to me uh, it was uh i was hired by the international council for the exploration of the sea to write a history for them and I uh, sort of pitched to them the idea that I would write a history of marine sciences over 100 years using their organization as a lens. They were founded in 1902, and they were getting ready for their centenary. Um, and I thought that was hard to write at the time, but in retrospect, it's easier to write a long book, and you know, it was very clear when to start it and when to end it. Um, so there was, you know, there were a lot of countries, there were a lot of uh, uh, people. You know, there was a lot in that book, um, but I also wasn't forced to cut it down to a very short number of pages either. So I, I, I wrote that book. Uh, and and then, in a way, I uh, the story I always tell is because I wrote, you know, I got a big, long book out of the way, I was able to take my dissertation uh, research and turn it into a much shorter book. So my book, Fathoming the Ocean, uh, was a kind of, I would say, a reasonable length compared to the original dissertation. It was about half the length of the original dissertation. Uh, and that was also, in a way, easy to, to make into a book because the dissertation was kind of book length. So I think when I faced the problem that you're talking about, 
um, was uh, when I started trying to figure out what to do after that book. And I had articulated a book project, which incidentally I'm still sort of interested in pursuing on, um, uh, I sort of, I call it always the last frontier. I'm really interested in the 1960s and ocean engineering and, and all that, that, the story of that kind of stuff that didn't come to pass, the stuff that's in the chapter Ocean Frontier in my current book. Um, but I kept getting distracted from that because I felt like it was really important to write something about why it was important to view the ocean historically. And in addition to try to write something that would help people uh, see how they could write ocean history. And, and so that was really the kind of ambition of my book, Vast Expanses, which lays out kind of three arguments. One is that people have been connected with the oceans since evolutionary time. And in some ways that shouldn't need to be said, but it does because at least in the Western context, we have such a, a sense of timelessness still associated with the ocean, although I think that might be changing. Uh, the second kind of thread or argument is that the connection between people and oceans has tightened over time. And again, that shouldn't need to be said because it's certainly true for terrestrial nature, uh, but I think it does need to be said. And third was an argument that uh, if we want to write ocean history or tell ocean history, I think I'm arguing that we need to pay attention to how knowledge about the ocean was created and used. Um, and that is going to require or be most easily done with the kinds of questions that historians of science and technology are good at. And this is because the ocean is different from land. It's harder to know. Um, it, it can't be uh, experienced directly and visually in quite the same way that land can. And so everything that we know about the oceans comes from you know, the end of technologies, fishers, nets, navigators, instruments. Um, it comes sometimes from working knowledge. It comes uh, certainly after the 18th century from the knowledge produced by modern science. But in every case, it comes from technologies and knowledge systems. And as soon as you get knowledge systems, you also have to pay attention to imagination, culture, ambitions, desires, all of that mirror stuff I was talking about. And so, so I really wanted to um, to sort of show people uh, how, how we could write ocean history. And I wanted to insist that ocean history be bigger than just fisheries history um, or just maritime history, which sounds very big, but focuses tends to focus on that surface of the ocean. Mm -hmm. I wanted to try to write a book that in, you know, in, in almost every example that I talk about also involves the third dimension of the ocean in some meaningful way. Um, so, and I, and I wanted to do that in part because given how important the ocean is in terms of uh, the kinds of effects that the ocean will face from climate change and the kind of um, importance that the ocean holds as a driver in the, the, the sort of climate system, you know, I think it's really critical that we begin to see how humans and, and the oceans have been always connected rather than thinking about the oceans as kind of out there. Yeah, right. Let's let's go into that a little bit more about, you know, when you study the past, you, you kind of see recurring trends, as we mentioned a bit earlier. What does that tell us about the future and how things like climate change or, um, yeah, the increasing competition for resources and the increasing degradation or uh, plastic pollution, things like this, which are shaping 
how people perceive the ocean going forward. I mean, what do you kind of see as the next uh, important things which are going to shape the history of the ocean when we look back maybe in 100 years or something like yeah, this? That's a good question. I will start that, that by answering, um, by telling you about uh, an exhibit that I uh, saw and reviewed in, uh, in a museum in the 1990s that was called Ocean Planet. And this was an exhibit that was activist. It wanted its goal was to get people who viewed the exhibit to go out and take action to do something about the ocean environmental crisis. And it had all these sections with these pictures, very moving pictures of overfishing and, and pollution and all kinds of things like that. This is before plastics was uh, as clearly understood as a problem. Um, but but many of the issues that you would expect. And then it had this section, because it wanted to talk about connections between people and oceans, that tried to do that. But it did it in this completely acultural, ahistorical way. So, for example, it had a section on um, uh, monuments to uh, fishers who, who died while they were working. And there were monuments from uh, different cultures and different time periods. But it basically conveyed this image that the human relationship with the ocean never changes. It's always the same no matter what culture you come from or what time period you're in. And that's simply not true. And, and it's, it's actually, I began to realize that it was doing a disservice to the activist intent of this exhibit because how can you get worked up about environmental change, negative environmental change, if you're dealing with an environment that you uh, you firmly, culturally, deeply believe doesn't change. So it was sort of, that was the genesis of starting to uh, say that we really, I mean, it's not just we need ocean history because, you know, everyone needs more history. And I say that because I'm a historian, right? Um, it, but, but quite seriously, I mean that if we do not begin to understand the ocean as a historical landscape and historical environment, a place that we have uh, had, we humans have had an interaction, set of interactions with for forever, really, our forever, um, then, you know, we are not going to be able to gather the political will to do anything. Because, you know, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Why would you do that if, you know, the ocean is unable to be, you know, touched or permanently changed. I think today it's more clear to more people that we have affected the ocean, you know, the pictures of plastic in the ocean, things like that. Uh, but I still think we need to really um, have that that moment of coming to terms with the fact that, you know, we did this, we did this over a long period of time. Um, and that that understanding is that that comes from the humanities is part of what's going to help us move forward. Yeah, it makes me think. One is, do you think that this image and of of human interaction with the ocean is getting more homogeneous over time as we kind of have a more globalization and we have more uh, global interconnectivity? It, I'm thinking a little bit across levels. You know, the the variation over time of of different interactions with the sea and different localities and the role of context. Um, are we losing some of that that history? Is it becoming homogeneous? Is is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I think. Globalization is a thing. And, you know, in some cases, yes, that's happening. Uh, on the other hand, I think that the world is now full of people who have 
um, thanks to the internet and, and, you know, communications technologies, the possibilities of creating local history. So I don't think it has to be that way. And I think we're getting much better at seeing, um, and Western scholars are getting much better than they were, you know, decades and longer ago at, at seeing cultural differences um, and, and uh, recognizing how important it is to, um, to listen to uh, people with expertise from uh, traditional cultures, from, from places all over the globe. So, so I guess I would be a little bit optimistic that, that we could um, uh, maybe go in the right direction there. Another question I had is this idea of the oceans as a as a global commons. I, I think I made the comment after your presentation, and and do we do you see this act uh, this aspect of increasing enclosure or this increasing regulation of the sea, and then does that regulation kind of uh, unravel this mystery of of the ocean, or is it becoming, in your impression, is are we is it becoming more privatized? Are we losing this aspect of commons in the global ocean? I mean, we are certainly, you know, enclosing vast portions of the ocean. And, you know, as a historian, there are other historic instances of enclosure where there have been winners and losers. And, and I think it's pretty clear that there are winners and losers. Um, so uh, I think that is happening, has happened, is continuing to happen. And I think that if you look at what's happening, especially in the Arctic, and potentially when the Antarctic Treaty is up for renegotiation, uh, you know, I think people worry about what will happen in, at those ends of the earth, so to speak, in terms of further enclosure or uh, national claims. Um, yeah, and I think I think those are uh, concerning, but other people might feel differently. I mean, I I uh, I guess I would like to just at the moment hold the position of a historian sort of noticing these changes and comparing them to other things and pointing out that there are winners and losers. Um, uh, but I, I think it's super important that we pay attention to that uh, because, you know, we as a, as a globe are going to have to uh, deal with the incredible number of people that will soon be on the globe and where they're going to live, especially because so many people live on coasts that will be inundated by sea level rise, what they're going to eat, um, and, and ask ourselves, you know, is the current legal regime of the ocean a good one for that? And, and who is it good for and who is it not good for? Is there anything else you'd like to say about your books or you'd like to tell us about any ongoing work or upcoming work that you're doing? I did have um, one, I forgot to follow up on the book thing. So just to sort of tell you, it turns out to be harder to write a short book than a long book. And, and this vast expanses, <laughs> the vast expanses book was um, really hard to write. And I think partly it was hard to write uh, because it meant so much to me. It really mattered to me to try to, you know, get this story out there. Um, uh, and, and as just a kind of a follow-up, uh, I'm kind of working on a few papers that have come out of the book. And um, one of them I just cannot cram into a paper and will probably be my next book. Uh, I'm interested in asking the question and answering the question of how science became a frontier um, and that 
uh, involves a kind of detour through the Pacific Ocean. So there will be some ocean in it, as there always is in my work. Uh, but uh, I guess I would say that I'm not very good at kind of deciding what book I'm going to write and just writing it. I seem to be really good at kind of letting things carry me along. So I, I don't know if that's advice for you or anyone else, but um, but that's, uh, I guess, don't worry if that's how it, if it goes for you, because I think that does happen to people. That's very interesting. One question I was just thinking of then was, how often do you engage with people outside of academia? I mean, do you do a lot of interviews with uh, people at various government organizations in the UN, for example? Does your work involve talking a lot with them or interacting with uh, non-academic practitioners, for example? I do not interact very much with policy people, although I, I did a little bit when I wrote uh, the book on the history of ICS, the International Council for the Exploration of the Seas. Um, I do talk to people outside of academia quite often, but it tends to be more public lectures and things like that. Um, I'm interested in museums, and I do a little work with some museums in my area. Uh, so it, it's probably more in the area of public history uh, than in policy, but I like doing it. Well, then uh, before we wrap up, I would say, is there a website or your Twitter account would you like to guide people to so that if they're interested in following your work, they can they can find you? Thank you. I didn't even think of that. Uh, I do tweet at, at Ocean Histories, and I have a website that is fathomingtheocean.com, all one word, Fathoming the Ocean. Uh, and please uh, check it out, and, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, sounds good. Well, we'll try to link to that in the, the notes for the show. And thank you, Helen. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.